experience too. It's good to be with you and uh, really grateful for the invite. I wanna, what I thought I'd do is we're going to break up our time into a few different chunks um, this morning, between now and, and lunch. And um, I, I think I'd like to sort of summarize, I guess, what I... I feel a bit strange summarizing a book, but so that you don't have to read it. I mean, we do have some today, but you don't, then you don't have to read it. You, you just know the idea and what the argument I'm trying to make. But I think that given the people I know here, I don't think it's going to be a difficult case to make. I don't think it's a difficult crowd to convince. So you, the idea of having Eucharistic and charismatic worship coming together, that's the idea. I'll, I'll talk a bit about that, but when I came in, I realized you guys are singing a song about the creed, and then people are bringing words and contributions. I see Jem Bunce pretty early on, and I, he brought a very significant prophetic word over me about probably before I knew what prophetic words were, and probably others in this room may have as well. Um, I just ran into Chris Plant. I thought, well, he and I first met him when he was about 25, leading a little charismatic church in the middle of Sussex where I lived. Um, there's loads of you like that who've got a lot of charismatic history, but you're also singing songs about the creed, and noticeably, because it's Lent, abstaining from croissants. I walked in, <laughs> and the entire table has still got all the croissants still on it, and I'm thinking, is this a Lent? Are they just much more like that than I realized? Um, so I don't really think you guys will need convincing of much of what I'm going to say, but I want to make the case anyway and summarize the way I would try and make an argument really for charismatic and historically rooted church life. The word I have invented for that is being you charismatic, but you can ignore the term. But the idea that we are called to have deep historical roots and high charismatic heights and that those two are friends rather than enemies. That's the idea. And I'll try and make that case. And then I want to take, uh, get you guys thinking about some of the tensions that emerge if you do that. And some of the challenges you have when you're trying to lead churches into both at the same time, which many of us are. Um, and then we will see where those discussions go. And then I'd probably like to have a bit of time of uh, prayer and ministry and maybe get the band back out and have some communion. And I don't know. We'll see where that sort of unfolds. But that's a sort of broad plan. Um, and if at some point you just want to get up and go and get a, a coffee or a in fact, the croissants have all been taken now since I said that. <laughs> Somebody's realized a bin liner full of croissants is walking out. Um, but you, could, you should just feel free to move around a bit, um, particularly during the time of discussion. Um, let, me, let, me, let me pray that God would be, would be with us and speak to us as we spend this time together. Father, we thank you so much for your presence, your mighty presence, and the joy of being with your people, the joy of being with you. And we pray that you would minister to us. We pray that you would serve us. And as we know, you love to do, just to come among your people, the, the God who came to wash our feet. And we are so grateful you are, and we want to imitate you and serve others. But today, we are also so delighted to be served by you, for you to minister to our souls, for you to bring truth and insight and wisdom and apply it into our lives and bring joy, joy unspeakable and filled with glory. We pray for that. We pray that we would go home with a spring in our step because we have met with God and heard from you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'll, tr I'll try and make the, uh, the argument, if I may, for having churches that are spiritual and sacramental or charismatic, or if you like, characterized by a sense of the historic roots of the church and the sacraments and liturgy and history, as well as being charismatically bouncy. And I, the image I often use is that of a trampoline, or a tr actually a trampoline or a tree, both things which basically, as you go deeper, you get higher. And that in a sense that there is the, the tension that's often expressed in church life globally would be that many churches are churches that go, we go deep. Um, but we go so deep that we don't really come out again. Or churches that are just high all the time and you're trying to maintain a state of euphoria 
um, but without necessarily the resources to, to keep it going. And of course, if you, we have a trampoline on our garden. My kids love it. And if you're going to get high, you, the goal is not to sort of do standing jumps in the middle and just jump up as high as you can. Of course, you're trying to go down as far as you can because as you go down, you go further up and that enables you to go further down and so on. And that if you want more bounce, you need more depth and vice versa. And that for those of us who are in churches as I have been through life where you are often trying to, maybe you've experienced this, trying to maintain a stage of height, heightened emotion, but without going down deep into the riches, not just of the word of God actually, but often of the practices of the people of God as well, you find you've got very little resource to get higher. And so you maintain, you maintain it. The guy who pastored the church I was in for many years referred to it as, you got jam tomorrow, Christians. He would use that phrase a lot. He'd say, just people who were continually saying, it's all right, if we keep up, then God will give us jam tomorrow. It was this sort of concept. And so there's always going to be something really new experience just around the corner. And he was always saying, that's a dangerous mentality because over time, disillusionment can set in. You want to get people who are seriously happy. They have to have depth as well as height. But I've also been in churches where the opposite problem exists, uh, where you've got people who've got so much depth that there isn't really any height at all, and we are so deep into the things of God that you don't very often smile. Um, and if that's and if that's not and that's not even just a comment about personality, because some of us are, and that's what I love about this group, um, and actually even other people I know in this room, you know, the personalities of just to take two people sitting in front of me, Matt and PJ. You know what I mean? You go, PJ's probably the kind of person who would say. Yeah, my leg's just been lost, but at least I didn't lose both of them. He's, that, he's just that kind of person, and Matthew is not. <laughs> Please take him deep. I can, yeah, yeah. And actually, then Howard chips in, and Pete Cornford, and you think, actually, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm looking around the people I know here, right? PJ and Ash and John and Vicky and... Pete and, and, and Pete and Nikki and Andrew and C and people who I just think you're Matt and Grace. The personalities are wildly different. Some people naturally are much more optimistic than others, and that, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not, and you can decide who's where on that spectrum. I'm sure, but the point is this: out this is deeper and richer than that, isn't it? It's not just personality, and the, the whole and and of course, if you stand in worship singing next to Matt, you go, he's not singing like this because he's naturally just a kind of kind of character. I am, but. Lots of us aren't, and that doesn't mean that we don't experience joy. But sometimes in, there are church traditions where no matter how upbeat the person is, the way church is done encourages so much sobriety and depth and reflection that it never quite seems to lift its head to the fact that we are a people of joy and not just of... You know, the language of miserable sinners is a classic example, isn't it? Where that at the, When that was written, it was a great prayer because miserable meant people in need of mercy, which we are. The problem is it now doesn't mean that. It now means glum. And so if people are saying, if that's, if that's the kind of identity you take on as you walk in a church, you've got, the, you've got the history and the depth, but you don't have the height. And I want us to have both. And I think we, this room, all the people I know in this room pursue both in various ways anyway. Um, but it, I, I'll put it on the map a little bit with my own, little bit of my own story, because I was baptized into, um, as a baby, I say, I would now call it christened, of course, but it, I was christened into St. Helen's Bishopsgate, which is... A, uh, a, a very conservative, deep, rich London, you know, it's in, you know, on Bishopsgate, right? So it's right in the heart of the city of London. Dick Lucas was the rector there for many years, wrote these great, you know, you, some of you have got his commentaries on various things. Very, very good on deep, historical, nuanced, careful theology. A lot of depth, 
but at least in the terms that I might now express it, not as much bounce. And I was christened in that. My parents got saved there. My dad uh, got led to repentance in Dick Lucas's flat um, about uh, in the 10 days before he got married. And, uh, and had this amazing encounter. And it was, he was just sort of describing the fact that he felt like he'd met with God. And Dick Lucas said to him, and this is back in the days when you would call, if you're 50, you would call a 25-year-old guy Mr. Wilson. Um, and my dad is just, you know, venting about this wonderful experience he's had with God. And Dick Lucas says to him, which is wonderful, Mr. Wilson, but the question is not, what do you feel? The question is, what does the Bible say? And my dad gets that grounding of like, wow, even when I've had these kind of eyes, I'm being corrected by the, <laughs> by the pastor to tell me, that, does it, you can't trust your, in the end, you can't trust your feelings. You've got to trust the word of God. And my parents baptized me into that church, and then they moved from that to, yeah, this is being filmed, but crazy charismatic commune which has now morphed into a church and many years later and is very different but when I went there it was basically we moved into a village not far from here called Hancross and basically Christians kind of a slightly hippie-ish kind of vibe bought up almost all the houses in the high street of the village including my parents they, they did it um, and I grew up in this sort of wow no one's got any money but we all share our possessions and people knock at the door and say I just felt like I needed to bring you this pair of shoes and they said oh, that's wonderful well here's a chicken it was that kind Kind of <laughs> seriously, I'm not kidding. We had people living in my house throughout my childhood, and some of them stole from us, and there was a lot of pain and all that kind of stuff. But it was a very intense, charismatic, hot house sort of environment where people are, you know, living that kind of Christian life. So my parents tacked from the two outer markers, really. And when they left St. Helens, the rector at the time was speaking about the fact that the charismatic movement was the Colossian heresy, um, which I don't think it is, and I'm not even sure he would still say that it is, but that was the kind of leap they made, and I kind of got brought up with both of those, and then they just got really hurt in this kind of charismatic context, because as I say, people were, there was a lot of people with addictions, and they didn't know necessarily how to handle that, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of people, the communal living obviously is more open to abuse of the earnest young couple who want to serve God than perhaps some other models are, it's not safe, that doesn't mean it isn't good. Um, but at the time, I think they could sustain it for a, three years, but then they went, right, okay, Anglicans, let's go. Okay, village church, we'll move, and they settled in a village a couple of miles away uh, called Balcombe and went to St. Mary's Balcombe, which was very uh, worthy and very dull, and I was there for about five or six years. Being, But it's, a, it's amazing how much you get from just having to hear the same language repeated every week, and I didn't know the benefit of it until many years later. But I could still, no, I don't think I have heard it since I was 12, but I could still recite large sections of content that I never use now, uh, but that I just, you have drummed into you. And it f actually does form you even when you wish it didn't. And so I went into that sort of context. Um, and then my parents were, yeah, we, we, this is killing our kids. And so when I reached about 11, we went to a church in Hayward's Heath, which there may even be some of you have visited. Certainly, I've, that's where I first met some of you. Um, when I was in that kind of, and through my teenage years, I spend my, I'm at boarding school, so I spend my, half my Sunday in Eastbourne College receiving even, not, it's not only worthy, it's not even worthy and dull, it's just dull, because, because a lot of people there don't believe the gospel at all, and yet because it's a sort of 18th, 19th century Victorian foundation school, they have to do the Christian worship, but the guy preaching doesn't believe the Bible at all. Uh, and you can tell, and he's, you know, takes a text and then just goes and says something totally bizarre, and he, you know he's not a Christian at all. And so that was awful, but again, the liturgy's banging in, um, and I don't know quite what to make of that, but anyway, that's what it's doing. At the same time, I then spend the other half of the Sunday at this church in Hayward's Heath, 
um, during the Toronto Blessing Time, um, <laughs> which, again, some of you were there and uh, responsible. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, it, it was, it's, a, it's a very binary experience. As a teenager, you're trying to work out how to make sense of this, aren't you? And you sort of go, and that's effectively the kind of two. And I don't think I could have conceived. And I know my, my version of this is probably extreme, but it may be that there are people in this room who would relate to some segments of this and be able to put together, I can imagine that church even if I haven't been there. Or I haven't been to that church, but I have been there because there's lots and lots of other churches like them. So I had that and then went to uh, university and was quite backslidden at university, so I didn't really do that much church. But when I did go to church, I went to a church that was you know, much more on the charismatic end. Um, and then started, you know, did a year team, started uh, running a gap year program, which some of, again, I know some of you from, including Will, who was just leading, uh, read, ran that for about 10 years. And while I did that, I just sort of gradually edged into pastoral ministry in the church in Eastbourne. And while there, I guess, began to realize that we, on that sort of very, on the spectrum from we're very deep but no bounce to very bouncy but no depth, that we were certainly more at this end, and probably we began to move over time, a number of us as leaders uh, challenged in all kinds of different ways, actually. I suppose you start reading people who seem to have something you don't, even though you think you've got something they don't, and you start edging towards slightly more pra uh, historic practice. I think the first time, it was actually Matt, was the first time I ever heard a New Frontiers pastor say that they'd used a creed. I didn't, I mean, this was only, this is less than 10 years ago, probably. I don't know when it was you first did that, and it was when you was in pool. And I remember thinking, I mean, it may have happened before, but that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And I thought, huh. I didn't, I didn't know, we, I didn't, are, we allowed to do, are we allowed to do that? And, strange. and so and what I realized was that, that it gradually began to see there is, a, there is a happy both and here in which we, not for the sake of trying to look like we're tipping our hats to the old guys, but really we carry on doing things differently. But there's a, there, are, there are things we can gain and things we can learn from the wisdom of people who've died as well as the wisdom of people who are alive. And as you do that, often you find that a fusion happens where people actually seem to meet, as, we, as just happened when we sang that song a few minutes ago, where people seem to believe the truths that make them joyful more, not less, because they're singing them in language that was written by somebody a very long time ago. And that seems an odd dynamic, but there's something about it. And if you've, you know, you've, it will have experienced it just now, but I first experienced it in a prayer meeting in a church in Chichester, just hearing somebody say, there has been a prayer meeting in this building every day for 900 years. And it ought not to make any difference because I know that God is present everywhere and I know I can go and approach God wherever he is. I believe those things. I passionately champion those things to my kids or my church. But there's still something that kind of goes, oh, when you realize you are participating in something that deep. And it seems to add a bit of weight and, and, and meaning. And in some ways, you just feel like I, the great cloud of witnesses are with me on this one. Um, and that can help you sort of confirm those things. Um, and then, of course, in the last, just to bring the story up to date, in the last three years, I've moved to an, another church in King's Church, London, uh, which is a sort of much more urban and diverse context, which has an awful lot of people there from Pentecostal or black church backgrounds. And that has then been, then you effectively, you're bringing with now quite a developed concept of what you think you, the church can be with both of these things, the charismatic and the Eucharistic coming together. You then have to work out how, okay, so how do I contribute that? How do I help the church in that when I'm, I'm not in charge of it? The church has already got 1,500 people in it. I can't just go, right, here's the new way we do things. I don't even, don't even lead the team. And yet at the same time feel like, but I think God has 
is showing me and has shown many of us something here about how we can do these things together. So that's, and we'll t touch on some of those questions in a, in a few minutes. The worst talk I ever did came in about, I would say about eight years ago, I could check exactly when it was, at King's Eastbourne, where I was describing the vision of our church in the context of all of the things which the church in the past had got wrong that we have now found. And if you would, I'm, I think it's still online, which is in a good way, quite a humbling thing. I like, I'd like, to, like it to stay there just as a reminder of this is what can happen if you, if you don't realize that you are standing on the shoulders of other people. And, it's, and I've actually gone back to those notes and gone, man, this, is, this was not very long ago. But it, effectively, it was a way of saying, this is what happened. The, church, the early church had all the good stuff. And then gradually, one by one, it got lost by the stupid dead church. Um, but fortunately, in the last few hundred years, starting with Martin Luther and finishing with Terry Virgo, we found it again. <laughs> now, I didn't quite say it like that, but effectively, it's the, it's the toilet U-bend vision of church history, where you start with glory, descend into ignominy and darkness, and then upwards towards the light. And I had, I had pretty much preached that. I didn't do it using that image, but that was the gist of it. And you can tragically listen to that message if you don't have anything else to do. <laughs> but in some ways, that's, the, that's at a historical level. That's the challenge I've, off, I've been trying to make ever since. And, well, not ever since. Since realizing, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and, and actually, what it, what, often what reflected that was simply ignorance, which was not having read any of the people in this period. Because as I, as I did, I then realized, you guys, many of you have a much stronger belief in what I would call spiritual charismatic gifts than I had ever heard you did. And in fact, I'd been taught that not just by conservatives who said the church fathers didn't do spiritual Nobody did spiritual gifts until the Pentecostals. And I thought, I, I'd always told that by charismatics as well. So I, I believe both my conservative teachers and my charismatic teachers were saying, this is a new thing in the last hundred years. Acts had it. No one really did it from the middle of the second century until 1904. And then suddenly it reappeared. Which, of course, makes the conservatives go, and that's why it's wrong, and makes the charismatics go, and that's why we're great. But both of them agree that it had largely disappeared. And then you start reading these guys, and you think, hang on a second. I read Augustine. I was like, there's a whole massive, massive chapter in the city of God defending why miracles haven't ceased. Just hammering, hammering, healing testimony after healing testimony from, like, some of them very, very unpleasant things that I'm not even sure I, I'm, I'm not sure I want to even say rectal fistula out loud. <laughs> but Augustine does and goes into healed of this, healed of gout, healed of this, healed of blindness, whatever it is, all the way through, healed of breast cancer, just hammering away at these stories and saying, there you go. And these are all well known. And I've experienced many of them in person myself. Augustine saying, and I'm thinking, this is not a this is not a flake, this is not a new, new person. This is like the most influential text for the next thousand years in Europe written by this African guy who has experienced massive varieties of spiritual gifts. And then I started reading other fathers and realizing prophecy, speaking in languages, casting out demons. Casting out demons is a big one. They did, that's how, that was part of their baptism practice. I got challenged recently by a guy on a training course I run saying, so why is the baptism liturgy that you effectively that you use, you don't, might not like that word, but the, the thing you get people to say in your church when they get baptized, why is the baptism liturgy in the fourth century more charismatic than yours? Because what they had to do is stand there. They literally spit in the face of the devil and say, you are no longer my God and I defy you. And, every, and effectively announcing the existence of the devil and rebuking him and then turning and facing the other direction when they come out the water and putting on completely different clothes. They did the whole thing naked. 
Like, they, they, they took off their old clothes of old life. Single sex, just to be clear, but they single sex baptisms, but they did. And they'd take it off and they'd spit in the devil, spit in the face of the devil, go into the water, come up, and then face the sunrise and receive new life and put on new clothes and go and take their first Eucharist. And I thought, and, this, and I was telling them this and someone said, well, do you, is there any mention of the devil in the way you do baptisms? And I was like, man, I'd never really thought about that. Um, and again, in a much more Pentecostal-flavored charismatic context, people talk about the devil a lot more than most white people do. And that's been a challenge. Many of our black folks say to me, you just, it doesn't seem like that's a very big part of your theology. Angels and demons actually, despite my charismatic bona fides, which I thought I had, play a much smaller part of my understanding of the world than they do for many global believers and many dead Christians. So that's my kind of, that's my story with a few sort of things to consider there. And it's really a way of introducing the topic. But um, I do want to have a look, little look at the, a little look at the Bible. What a dreadful phrase. <laughs> let's, let's have a little, anybody have a verse? You know, like, um, do you just want to turn to 1 Corinthians? Just turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at a number of different places in 1 Corinthians. But this is, if you like, that I've made effectively a, a personal version and a historical version of the case but I think it's only fair to make a biblical version of the case as well. Um, to me, the, the, the easiest way, if someone says, what is your argument for trying to be, biblical argument for being charismatic and sacramental at the same time, my response would be the phrase, when you come together in 1 Corinthians. Okay, So the phrase, when you come together, appears eight times in 1 Corinthians, and in seven of them, it is talking about church practice. The eighth one is talking about sex between a husband and a wife, which is why it doesn't prove particularly relevant, although I think it's probably a good thing as well. Um, but the other, the other seven all refer to what happens when the church meets. Um, and you're always going to see a few of them. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, and beginning verse 17. But in the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And he's not very happy about that. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You notice that phrase is repeating and repeating as if to say, this is what happens when you gather. You meet in your households, perhaps. We don't, can't be quite certain whether the church in Corinth met separately in households, but they certainly did have a gathered meeting where all the Christians in the city came together. So the church, yeah, probably some lower limit 50, upper limit absolute max 200 somewhere in the low, low to mid 100s, probably in size. So this is not a sort of massive 50,000 deal. These, you know, there's maybe 150 of them or something. And they all get together in some space. We're not quite sure where. They all get together and meet. And they do that presumably on a weekly basis on the Lord's Day, but they may, they may have done it a bit more rarely than that. And we're not actually certain, but we get the sense from 1 Corinthians 16 it happens pretty much every week. So Paul is then saying, when you come together, and as soon as he starts talking about corporate worship, his immediate assumption is, you guys are having the Lord's Supper. This is not going to be a pitch for you. You must do that. Um, and my church doesn't. But I just wanted to put it out there. I think that's assumed here. I think Paul is talking at least as if this church do that. Um, actually, curious, straw poll. How many people have communion weekly? Oh, wow, quite a lot. lot more. Okay. Well, you should be up here, really, and I should be sitting there. Um, how many people monthly or more, but not uh, monthly or more? Include the first group. So you monthly or more? Okay, so most of us, right. Um, and so the assumption here is when you come together, this is what you're going to do. And he keeps going. Uh, if you go down towards the end of that passage, verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
It's just, would, would people describe your church meeting that way? It's just, I'm not saying they would mind. I just think it's an interesting comment, isn't it? When you come together to eat, what are you going to do today? Oh, I'm off to go and come together to eat. I would say, no, I'm off to church. We're going to go and sing. We're going to come together to eat. It's an interesting comment. Uh, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So there are five... When you come together is in this text, and they all refer to communion in this context. Now, obviously, some of that's just because this is what Paul is correcting. So that's not saying this is five times more important than other stuff or anything like that. And nor should we read anything into the fact that he doesn't say when you come together to read the Bible or to preach. Or I'm not, I'm not trying to go there, but just to say it's interesting, is it not, that when some, the only times Paul does this to a church in terms of correcting their corporate worship practice we get a bit with Timothy where he tells them individually, you must devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, exhortation. But here, correcting a whole church on how they worship, he just hammers five times. This is, I'm assuming, going to include communion. And this is what you're doing wrong. That's the Eucharistic part. That's the sacramental part. It's just This is assumed that this is what a church will do on the Lord's Day. And I imagine that came from Paul himself because, of course, he says, I received these traditions and I'm handing them on to you. But we get the same phrase appearing in a totally different context, which I heard a lot more about when I was growing up in a charismatic church, in chapter 14. You go into chapter 14, you all know these verses very well as well, I'm sure. Chapter 14, verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters... He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God's really among you. Now, when you come together, you're having communion. When you come together, one of the problems you have is that everyone's talking in tongues at the same time and no one understands it. But if when you come together, everyone's prophesying, you'll get clarity. That means people fall on their faces and call out to God to save them because they realize God's really there. And we know this one. Again, depending on your history, you may know both of them inside out. But... I, that kind of thing I heard a lot as an exhortation. Guys, when we, I've heard it read many times at the start of Christian meetings in my church. When you come to the Bible says, when you come together, everyone, verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. But in my context, the when you come together exhortations applied to the charismatic ones, but not to the sacramental ones. No, I don't think anybody ever said, the Bible says, when you come together... Make sure that you eat. What I did have, when you come together, make sure that you all sing out and prophesy. But similarly, there'd be many churches, of course, where they'd quote 1 Corinthians 11 a lot, and 1 Corinthians 14 might as well not be there. Do you see that the same phrase is used to prescribe Christian worship, and it's simply assumed that these are the kinds of things that happen when Christians gather. And that, in a sense, is the both and I'm talking about, just in that phrase, when you come together. Just those four words seem to... Literally, coming together of the Eucharistic and the charismatic together in the, in the life of the believer, in the life of the, of the congregation. But I think we don't have to stop there. If we stay within 1 Corinthians, you will find a lot of other, can I call them liturgical elements and not have people think that liturgy has to be dry? I just Liturgy is things that you do or say a lot in a repetitive way to try and form people. We all have it, and you'll, many of you know this and probably make the point as mischievously as I do, but... You, you don't remove liturgy when you become a charismatic. You just change it. So you no longer say, it is indeed right. It is our duty and our joy in all times and in all places. But you do always say, if you're a visitor, we're not after your money. 
You, do, you know what I mean? There's always something that you say at every single meeting. It's just a different something, right? Or the Lord inhabits the praises of his people, or you, you don't have to stand up if you don't want to, or whatever. It, uh, the thing is, we all have liturgy, and, and in most of us, in most of our cases, we sing lots of it, which I think is marvelous because I love singing, but singing reaches parts of the person that other beers don't reach and enables you to strengthen and deepen your theology without even realizing you are. Do you notice, by the way, little side thing on hymns? This isn't, and you guys seem, you know, we sung two hymn-like things in the 20 minutes I was in the, in the time of singing, but the fascinating thing about the power of hymns is that what hymns do that modern songs don't do in the same way is hymns get you used to the, 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 um, the shape of the song, the melody and the rhythm of a song, so that by the time, even if you never heard it before, and I don't think I'd ever, I knew the words, but I'd never sung that hymn to that melody before that I know of. So I'm learning it. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And then when the really rich, beautiful, the most amazing content in the song comes in towards the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, I think it was, I already know the melody and the rhythm, so I'm singing it and learning it for the first time. So you're declaring stuff to the tune, realizing it's true, and you've never heard those words before, but you know how to sing them because the hymn has taught you how to do it. And I just think that's a, I'm just as a worship leader thing, and well done, Will and others, but I mean, that, that's just an interesting comment about the way that hymns work because modern songs don't really do that because by the time you've learned the melody, you've had to sing the whole song. I'm just throwing that out there. Anyway, I, just, I think it's really great because I love that thing of I'm learning a song, I'm learning content as I'm singing it, which I've never heard before. And it often just makes me cry in worship because I'm an emotional, silly sort of person. But anyway, there are other liturgical elements Thank you, Rich. Um, there are other charismatic elements in the church, um, other liturgical elements in the church in Corinth. In fact, there's loads. You could justify almost every liturgical practice the church has used, the good ones, from the letter of 1 Corinthians alone. So just flick forward to chapter 16, right? This has been a central part of the liturgy of many churches, an offering. Interestingly, of course, the church has usually framed this as an offering for the poor. I'm not saying that means you can't take up an offering to pay the salaries of people in your church or pay for the building at all. We do every week. But the church has usually framed this as you take up an offering for the poor. But this is biblical warrant for that liturgical practice as part of a Lord's Day meeting. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Right? There, in other words, should you, is it biblical to take an offering in your service? Yes. Right? Because that's exactly what you say. On the first day of the week, when you get together, that's what you do. Right? So you don't have to take a whip round later. There's a reference to the church calendar, extraordinarily, in 1 Corinthians 16. Right? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul didn't throw out the Jewish annual calendar when he became a Christian. There's a lot of other things he didn't throw out as well, and we won't get into all of those. But at this point, he didn't throw out the calendar, which is interesting, is it? He, he just went, okay, well, I'm gonna, I will allow my annual cycle to be calibrated by the Jewish liturgical festivals. And that's not to say that you should all observe the church calendar. It's just, and I, I, there's lots of it that I don't, but some of it I do. Um, and obviously, as a result of croissant gates, I know that you all do as well. Um, <laughs> We've got the closest thing in 1 Corinthians that the New Testament ever provides to a creed. I think we've actually got two, effectively, creedal statements. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and then more fully at 1 Corinthians 15. But 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I am quoting, if it's effectively quoting something you guys all know to correct your practice of eating idolatrous food, but it's a, it's a formulaic statement that's all, presumably already packaged in that form, and that scholars think there's quite a few of those in Paul, but, but Paul has maybe even made this one up himself and just said, I am going to take the Jewish creed, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, and he's put Jesus into the middle of it. So instead of saying the Lord our God is one, he said there is one God and one Lord, and the God is the Father and the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has taken a Jewish creed and Christianized it. And then we have a, obviously a fuller one in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to, I love the rustling of paper when people, it's just a, such a great sound. For I delivered, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Actually, you get together those two verses alone, you've got quite a lot of the articles of the Nicene Creed before you've even started. I believe in one God, I believe in one Lord, who was seed of the Virgin Mary, you know, and so on, all the way through to the crucifixion and resurrection. So we've got creedal statements. We've got lots of reference to the sacraments. We've got baptism treated in, in an interesting way in 1 Corinthians 1. We've got the Lord's Supper, as we've seen. We obviously have prayer, plenty of outbursts of prayer in the letter. That's how the letter starts. We have lots of ethical teaching applying scriptural insight to contemporary situations in chapters 5 to 10. We have the preaching of the cross at length. We have the preaching of the resurrection at length in this letter. We have a, a, a sermon-like thing where Paul takes an Old Testament story in chapter 10 and then hammers it into the hearts of the people saying, this is why you ought not to do that thing you're doing. In other words, it's like an expository homily on the Old Testament, from the story of, particularly from the story of Numbers. Uh, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. We have what seem to be liturgical sayings, but in our context, liturgical sayings, um, I had an Irish chaplain at my boarding school, and he would always go, hear what comfortable words our Lord Jesus Christ says to all who turn to him. Come unto me, all ye who are laden, and I will refresh you. That's how he used to do it in that kind of way. But that's not the kind of liturgical sayings that Paul brings out. You know the one he brings? In this, in this, you know what it is? In 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, I've offended Irish people. <laughs> Chaplains, Anglicans, who've I, I've offended someone, sorry. I'm not saying you sound like that, I'm just saying he sounded a bit like that when I was 15. Um, he's probably dead now, the poor guy, I've just besmirched his good name. Um, but that's, that's the kind of liturgical saying that you might have in a formal liturgy now. But the liturgical saying that Paul seems to come, come on, then shall come to pass the saying that is written... Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Your grave, where is your sting? I suspect if that was the liturgical saying that snuck its way into those... In fact, I've been in charismatic churches where people do that. And it's just, the liturgy is simply, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Hallelujah. A lot of charismatics don't mind liturgy when it says those sorts of things. They don't, the sleepy, dreamy, miserable liturgy they don't like... But you start declaring things like that, and people get animated quickly, and rightly so. That's what Paul... But it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. Then she'll come to pass the saying that's written. He's put two Old Testament texts together in that one and said, this is what we declare. Um, I think it was 
yeah, the, the fam- I can't remember who it was on our, one of our leadership training courses, but just saying it's like the football chant, you're not stinging, you're not stinging, you're not stinging anymore. It's just a wonderful taunt to death, isn't it? It's just such a fantastic comment for those of us who are football fans. Um, and then, of course, there's lots of quotations from the Bible, quotation from the Gospels itself. And then the letter finishes, chapter 16, verse 22. The last two sentences of the letter uh, end up have, contain a benediction, uh, an anathema, a maranatha, and the grace, all appearing in, two, in three verses, right? If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Again, take, make of that what you will, but that's a formal pr- pronouncement, right, about the, about the curse that comes along those who don't love the Lord. I'm not saying we use it. Then, Amaranatha, our Lord come, which is, as we know, is a very common r- repetitious phrase in the early church. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love with all, you be you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's a final blessing. So a very, in that sense, liturgically dense sign-off as well. So, we had one Corinthians and nothing else. We got a lot of elements of Christian worship. And, of course, we could talk a lot more about singing and many others. Um, but I, th- I hope that that makes something of a, a biblical case for the thing I'm talking about at a personal and historical level. And then just before I pause for a moment and let's have a l- little bit of discussion on a couple of the practical things, I just think there's a pastoral reality to consider here as well, which goes back to where I started on the trampoline, really, but the theme of how people find joy. And this is genuinely, I mean, facetiousness about the difference between Matt and PJ aside, we have to pastor people with very different personalities, let alone people with different, very different cultural baggage and cultural backgrounds. And if, you know, I read a, I think Carl Truman posted something two days ago on what can the miserable sing in your church or something like that. It was on nine marks. It's, and he's <laughs> definitely, a, he's, you know, Matt is very, very sunny if you spend any time with Carl Truman, I suspect, right? So this is <laughs> Would that, would that be a fair assessment? I'm sorry. I'm, this is so unfair because you were so nice to me. But I'm just... Um, <laughs> we do love Matt, don't we? Um, but they, but you, have, you have... what We have people coming into our church sad every week, right? And we have people coming into our church on cloud nine. And if our worship is only calibrated to cater to either group, actually then we, we, we can't quite serve all of the people of God where they are at. And that's not, by the way, the responsibility in my... So I will say, you guys make of this what you will, you're all pastors, but what I, my assessment is that is not as a very unfair responsibility to place on the equivalent of will in the opening 60-second exhortation to worship as the guitar chord is being played. As in, get me from my week to the glories of Jesus... Yeah. In 60 seconds, who, want, who is equal to these things? I mean, I'm not, and I'm, I wouldn't want to ask any worship leader to do it. That's actually not how... And that doesn't mean you don't give an exhortation. It doesn't mean you don't declare the glories of Christ. But you have to then think, how are we going to structure and shape the whole corporate worship, which I don't just mean the singing time. I mean the whole meeting, which I imagine for many of us is somewhere around 90 minutes. How are we going to use that time that there is food for the soul and joy for people wherever they are? People who are already up, people who are very, very down, people who are everywhere in between. And obviously some of the answers the church has offered to that are, well, of course you think about the theology of your songs and you use the Psalms and you make sure that you preach with application to both people and you have some things which of course can be taken in very different spirits simultaneously, which is true of the bread and wine, isn't it? So you come, you come to the... I'm up on cloud nine. I'm coming, yeah, yeah Jesus died for his son, risen from the dead. Take the bread, glory. You know, I'm, that's more often how I want to experience it. But next to me, 
as people are coming to the table, as somebody going, Jesus, I am hanging on with my fingernails. I can't even think about the Bible right now. The only thing I can do is stumble forward and take a bit of bread and a bit of wine and trust that you'll do something with it. And you've got both. Now, that's, that's great. And prayer, similarly, when you get people to pray, my church history culture, my, my church, uh, what's the best way of saying my church history? I mean, my history in the church has placed a much greater emphasis on spontaneous prayer where we are. Everybody say what's on your heart which works well for people like me, honestly, privileged, extroverted, articulate people who know their Bible well. Works great. It does. It does. I have no problem doing that at all. I do it right now, just spontaneous prayer. You know. But that's not where many of our people are. And so actually, if I'm going to help them learn to pray, simply saying, pray what's on your heart out loud, a lot of people are going, I don't want to do that. I think that's a major reason why the attendance at our prayer meetings is so much smaller than our attendance at our Sunday meetings because people simply don't know how to do what we're asking them to do. And it's scary for people, which doesn't mean you don't get them to pray like that at all. But you understand, if we, I, I often think we, I'm not sure that our meetings are well designed on Sundays to teach people to pray, which sounds like a weird thing for Christians not to notice. But I, when I was first told that by a non-Christian mother of one of our pastors, by the way, she came and she said, you know, he said to her, what did you think of the meeting? And she said, well, yeah, it's really interesting. I just kind of thought Christians would pray more. And, and it just hits you like a time. You think, what are you talking about? And every self-righteous bone in your body goes, what, what, what? And then you start thinking, hang on a second. Did, we, did anybody other than the worship leader and the preacher actually pray? I'm not sure we did. I throw these things out to consider. But as I hear, in a, the point being, of course, that those things, prayer, communion, singing, preaching... If you're going to spend all, almost all of your meeting doing one of those four or five things, you want to make sure that the emotional state of the people who are coming to your church is served, no matter what they are, in and through those different elements. And some of those elements, that's very easy. As I said, of communion it is. But it's much harder when it comes to songs because songs are, in their content and their melody, either up or down, or you know, and you need both. And we just need to think carefully. And the Psalms, of course, as we all know this point in theory, whether we always carry it through in practice, the Psalms are the most emotionally diverse book of songs ever written by anybody. I mean, it's just staggeringly diverse, aren't they? Just you, there is a psalm in there for every mood. There's ten psalms in there for every mood. It's incredible. And so I think at a pastoral level, we kind of owe it to our people to figure out how to structure the Sunday. I'm talking primarily here about Sundays, but to structure the Sunday meeting in such a way as to steer their, the lives of the people of God in a Godward direction to help them find joy in Jesus Christ, no matter where they are in their circumstances or in their, you know. The most people in Christian history, this is just a side point, came into Christian worship in a state of far, far greater physical pain than anybody does in this room. I expect. Now, that might be one or two. But there are, you know, because you're, until you've got anesthetics, you just don't, or paracetamol. You, so people are coming into the place of worship feeling something very uncomfortable. They've got a chronic toothache that they can't solve, whatever it is. And so the, the way in which worship's structured has to try and help people find joy, even when they are bringing those things. And you don't do that by pandering to people's sadness, but you do it by at least acknowledging it and framing it in the context of the grace of God. I'll finish with a story which is prompted by somebody, I think, from the very church I'm standing in. Is Quincy, did he used to come to this church? Simon Quincy? Was he not at this church? No, maybe he wasn't. He was a church nearby. Okay. But anyway, I was, on, um, I was running a leadership training. Does anybody know who I mean? Oxted. I'm going to say Oxted. 
somewhere in this sort of Surrey corridor. Another place, I'm not even sure if it exists, actually. Um, but I've seen, seen it on signs. But we were having a discussion in a leadership training discussion evening about whether or not, this is just a, a little, little story to conclude, on the formative power of, the, of your liturgy or the things that you say and do. And we're having a discussion, and I just asked that question, which is always good to tease out pastoral stickiness. So do you think that somebody who... Somebody, would you baptize somebody who is uh, sleeping with their girlfriend and is not yet saying, they said they're not there ready to stop? Yeah? So they want, they want to follow, they love Jesus, they're here, right? So yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, we, mm. would you baptize them? Which was a good question to get people, you, not more, less because of the answer, although I know what I think, but more because the way in which people answer the question names and articulates a lot of assumptions about what baptism is and what discipleship is and so on. And one person said, well, I'd, I don't, think, I don't think you should make an, an issue of it because in our church, when we baptize people, we say, do you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And they say, yes, and then we baptize them. So I think if he trusts in Jesus, that's, that's that. And then somebody else said, I don't agree with that at all. In my church, we say, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I don't think that that's necessarily showing the fruit of repentance, so I wouldn't baptize him. At which point, I mean, obviously my smug points at this point hit like 150 because I'm like... Isn't it interesting that what we've both done is to reason from our liturgy to our theology and not the other way around? We literally started with what we say and concluded that that must be what we should do rather than the other way around. And by the way, I'm not judging that. I think one of the answers is better than the other. But I'm not judging that. I'm simply pointing out it is a reality, however much we notice it, that what we declare regularly will become our theology, which is why the songs you choose and the form of words you use actually matter more than perhaps some in our more spontaneous freeloading tradition have often admitted. So I'm going to pause in terms of talk content there for a minute, but I would love us to think about a couple of things. So I, are, mo are many of us, this is a stupid question to ask to a room of people, are most of us sitting near somebody we know who we could have a meaningful conversation about the way our church does these things? Is anybody, anybody here, how many people are sitting near enough to someone who go, yeah, we could talk about that in our church here? Yeah? Clapometer? Good, okay. So, I want to ask you about time and ask you about space um, for a moment. And then we can get them together and form a continuum. Um, but I'm going to ask about time. How do you... Sorry, that's a friend's joke, which... Uh, you quoted the West Wing earlier, man. I was like, yeah. I walk in and I'm hearing Shibboleth quoted. Thus saith the Sorkin. It's just fantastic. Um, but how do you use your 90 minutes and where... Because this is all, I, I, it may be, you may think, all very well in theory, but in practice, if I spend five minutes doing that, that's five minutes I have to take away from doing that. Yeah. Yeah? And I think that's often the first problem that comes up when we are talking about applying this, because people, it could sound like someone saying, so basically you're saying I've got to do all that I'm doing, but we've got to pray more, we've got to have communion more, we've got to say some creeds, we've got to get some, teach people how to pray better, we've got, to, da, 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 we've got to include more of these, more of that, more of that. Where am I going to find that time? And then in the end, people go, you just can't, so we'll stick with what we're doing. But it is interesting. Maybe you should read the book. <laughs> right? So we're thinking about how do you use your time? And if you have somewhere in the region of 90 minutes, maybe seven, any, anybody here have a meeting on Sunday that's shorter than 75? Okay, anybody have a meeting here that's longer than 120 minutes? Okay, so we're all in that bandwidth of between an hour and a quarter and two hours. You might, the answer is not just tacking on more and more time anyway, so that's probably not going to help us, but think that one through. Some of us are doing it in multi-site contexts where the preacher leaves and the ministry time, you know, because I find that the, 
the application bit, we'll talk a bit about how we do it, but the application after the sermon is often a very good time to do several things at once. That's actually when you most want to pray into the thing. It's also most when you want to go to the Lord's Supper, or it can be. And it's also most when you want to have a ministry time to lay hands on people and pray for the Spirit to come. And you can't probably do all three of those things in the same 10-minute post-preach slot. So you've got to think about how you design your time. So could you just talk that one through with the other person? How do you design the time of your meeting? And is anything I've said today, or anything you've been thinking about vaguely related to what I've said today, that might make you think, I wonder if there's anything we could do differently there? Actually, well, let's do that first, and then I'll come back and talk, we'll talk about space, hey. okay? So, so any, uh, you, can, you can share these or not as you see fit, but any, any interesting either, I mean, you, you, some of you may be talking about this kind of thing all the time, and it's just renewing a discussion, but anybody interesting, like, we had a bit of, a, we had a bit of an interesting moment. We, we thought about this, or we suddenly realized, oh, actually, or Anybody got anything like that that they could share in a room like this? And don't worry if not. But I just thought it would be worth seeing. Any, any interesting discussions that you went, that, that was a helpful comment or insight we found? Nothing helpful. That's great. I feel like my work here is done. That's fine. Okay. Let me, let me I, will, I will assume for the sake of argument, you don't want to air your dirty laundry with everybody else. And that's absolutely fine. In which case, can I ask you to do this? This is, this is now one, one that we are less inclined to think about. I suspect that most of us have had discussions at least about hope we have, about the shape of the way we use our Sunday meetings as well as we can many times before. This next one might not have been something you've done. Have the same discussion now with regard to space. Okay, so how does the space of your... So in this room, yeah, what is, what is, what is center, what is obvious... In, okay, so if you go into a Roman Catholic church in the medieval period, you will find the, center, the whole thing is all about the altar because that, for them, is the center of worship. You go into an evangelical Bible church and you'll find the center of the place where all eyes look is the pulpit because that for them is the center of the church. And you go into a charismatic church and the center is the band. Yeah? Um, or, the, you know, or a screen or maybe both depending on the size of the room. So just worth thinking through how does, how do, what's the equivalent in your case and is there a way, and this is much more tricky and it probably would take a lot more convincing, but I suspect that our space reveals our priorities more than we realize it does. Um, and so if you have collapsible plastic communion tables that appear at the back once a month because uh, but there's no point in building them into the because we don't really often use them and when we do no one really is quite sure why but we will sort of put them there and we'll do that and then put them away again that's obviously quite different from the emphasis that you might place on the, the band and I suspect that the thing that you can't imagine removing spatially is also the thing that you can't imagine removing theologically that is to say, the reason why this band is all up here is because there is no way that 100 charismatic pastors are ever going to get together without singing. <laughs> now, I, by the way, and we have done singing and preaching and we're going to spend time in prayer and communion. So I'm, by the way, this is tick, tick, tick. This is great. But, but notice that it would have been odd if there wasn't musical instruments here. We would all have been, have we come to the right building? Like, there's no band? And of course, that is exactly how a Roman Catholic would feel if someone came in and there wasn't a... Do you see what I mean? An altar or whatever. So just have a think. Is there any equivalent of that in your context? That might be something you thought about less. So just, that will be a shorter discussion, but just a few minutes on the way you use space. And then we will take questions. And Okay. That one's a bit more of a curveball, which I am very aware of. So I'm not particularly expecting anybody to completely overhaul their auditorium. Shh. One thing never changes no matter what kind of church you're in. The shush noise makes far, is far better at gathering people back together again than any amount of talking over people. Um, 
but um, yeah, the, the, the space thing, I actually think um, PJ made the point, of course, when you come in and you see a coffee area that speaks about the importance of community as well, it does. So there's a lot, a lot of features of the way we use our space. They probably just accidentally reflect our priorities, but it's quite a good litmus test of what, what do we prioritize and why and that sort of thing, so we're thinking about. What I thought would be good to do is just to have maybe 10 minutes or so of any questions which you think I would have been annoyed if having heard all of that and then we're going on to the next thing, we hadn't had a chance to mention that or talk about. So any questions that occur to you and then we'll, what I'll probably do is uh, get the band back up we'll, and then we'll do a sort of mixture of prayer, ministry and communion in a way that is, is unfolding in my head as we speak. Um, but um, any questions? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Spontaneous <laughs> communion. We could do, you remember back in the days when everybody was like, you know, you do congas. Do you remember the conga used to happen? Maybe we could do sort of conga on the way to the table. I don't know. I'm not sure that would, be, I think that might be a bridge too far, even for this room, Pete. So, questions? Up for them. Yeah, I th my my brief view on that is that what we were what you do midweek, whether you like it or not, will reflect what happens on Sundays, just because the way that the Sunday worship functions in every church I've ever seen it pre prescribes what's normative for the church when they get together. That's what people think Christians do when they meet, and so in, and I've been in a lot of contexts where they say we don't do breaking bread on Sunday, we do that in homes. Or actually, this is what happens with prayer. Of course, we don't even do prayer on Sundays. We do that in homes or we do that in a prayer meeting or whatever. But in the end, the way that a meeting that's unsupervised by pastors will run will look very similar to the way that meetings that are supervised by pastors will run. So you will probably reflect the, the big meeting and the small meeting. And so that's not to say you... I, I, and this is just... That's, that's not in the Bible, right? That's just my observation of what I've seen. And I think by giving strong direction, you can push people more into that and less into this. And say, in the groups, we don't want you to try and do a preach. We want you to do this. But in the end, what usually happens in most life groups, no matter how you, you try and structure them four different ways, but most of them gravitate back to the two that we do on Sunday very visibly, namely the, the worship and the word. And that's generally how most life groups, in my experience, have, have gone. So I think in some ways the midweek gatherings can supplement and add and certainly break it down smaller. And the bigger the church, the more important that becomes, I think. Although I read a very interesting Twitter thread that got in my head this week by a number of guys I know, who all of whom I think are really smart people, saying... Small groups were invented in the 1970s and we don't really need them and we shouldn't think we do. And I was like, oh, and, and just, it just bamboozled me, so I'm going to bamboozle you and allow you to think about it. But it was just enough to make me think, I have never really gone there in my head. And I'm not proposing to now, but it was just, I think bigger churches, <laughs> bigger churches do need them. But it was quite interesting. I think if you're passing a church of 70, I thought, hmm. Anyway, I just, that's another little, I just like these grenades. I don't very often, just... The, the Stuart Otto's face right now is worth that remark. It's like, um, so I think the midweek gatherings, as we do them, and we do, and I, I will, will reflect Sunday, or the, with direction you can steer them away from imitating it, and we should, but I think in the end, the elements that there will probably, over time, the inertia will tend back to some kind of copy of what happens on Sundays, which is the same, by the way, the relationship that conferences have to local churches isn't it? You, 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 set a, you set a standard for how long people should speak and what sorts of songs they should sing, and people naturally go, oh, that's what the big guys do, that's what we'll do. I think that's just a common dynamic in the herd, and I, I think it's a good thing. You can use it well if you've got a good liturgy, um, and if you haven't, then it'll replicate problems. Yeah. You were talking earlier about the 
Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a really good question. Um, so I am. So one, I don't think I'm a great example of this, and I think I have an excuse, <laughs> which is that I don't. So I don't live in the town where the church I am a teaching pastor at meets. I live seventy miles away, um, which is strange, and there's a backstory, but you don't need to know that. But. And so I, in some, at the moment, the prayer meeting context is much less shaped. I am very, I'm not involved at all in shaping the prayer meeting culture for that, because of, for geographic reasons, basically. And I will go to a number of the prayer meetings, but I will just not, I'm not part of that. I'm not regularly there enough. We are talking, and we are reviewing all of this in a context of a Leaders Week away we have in May, because I think basically the guys on our team have read the book and started talking about it and going, right, we need, let's talk about this. How are we going to respond to some of these challenges? So we are going to do that. That's the second thing. I, so I've got a, sort of an excuse, a kind of a, I think we're going to do this. But what I can say is in Eastbourne, when I was an elder there for 10 years, I think one of the ways that you, in some ways, even in the leadership of a prayer meeting, you can... You can, you can spread the, not just, you know, we spread the context of prayer, as in everybody together, now in groups of three, now, you know, on, on your own, now quiet, now like, we do that with form, but I think we also need to do it not just with context of prayer, but content of prayer and the way in what we were actually telling people to do, as in pray stuff in a circle, pray stuff that's on your heart out loud, pray stuff that is being, has been written already, pray stuff that I'm going to lead you in, you're going to repeat after me, pray stuff that I will pray for you and at the end... You know, you know that's, that's how they would do it in the, in the intercession section in an Anglican church. The, all the church do is just go, Lord, in your mercy, and they'll go, hear our prayer. Now, that's, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it like that because I think that gets gloomy. But, but you see, they're, what they're trying to do is they're acknowledging people don't know how to pray and they're trying to teach them. I think the area where, of those five, the area where we've got least experience is in people actually praying a prayer that has been written by someone else. And I think you don't even need to, if you're starting, change management issue here. If you're starting, you just start with biblical prayers. You don't need to go to, let's use Cranmer. Like, I think Cranmer's the best liturgist in any language. But I, but I also think you're better to start with the Psalms. Or better to start with, a lot of churches just don't even use the Lord's Prayer, which is, that sounds bizarre, but it's true. Like, just praying it together. And then you use the prayers of Paul. D.A. Carson's got a fantastic book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, where he just expounds Paul's prayers and what are Paul's priorities. But they're so rich and deep. And actually, you start some of them, and everyone already knows them. And you say, now to him who is able to do a measure. And everybody starts going, or not everybody, but enough people go, that, you know, they know the rest of the prayer. So I think in that way, in a prayer meeting context, that's probably the one, that the using set prayers to teach people how to pray is probably the one where we are typically weakest. But I think group prayer were often good. Spontaneous prayer calling out, it will work. You just can't do it indefinitely. Uh, you, can't, you can't do it for too long without weirding people out. And it wouldn't also be where I start. Because I'm, if, I'm a new, if I'm new to a charismatic prayer meeting, I've never been in before. And it's like what you do with a visitor, isn't it? You go, we don't start with the deepest end bit of the meeting. But sometimes that is what we do. Opening song, and then right now, let's all pray out together. Because we're feeling up. But it may be that that's a harder place for some of the people coming to get to, and you need to build towards it and even explain the biblical rationale. Acts 4, they raised their voices together and said, or whatever. 
So the, it's the, some of the same things we do with, with other areas of church life we were trying to change, I suspect. But I'm not saying all of those things happen now in the church I'm in now, but I, I, think it will, I do think it will evolve. Any, and one more. Yeah. Um, so I hope so um, but I don't know because you might, you might you, the proof of the pudding is you come to our church and you go that's just terrible um, <laughs> I really like deep end shallow end which is language that probably some of you have heard Dave Smith introduced me to it that you have that you have a, in a swimming pool you need to have an area where the kids can paddle and you need to have an area where the you know experienced swimmers can do lengths and you and, and actually that what happens in church life is you have to decide how deep or shallow is the charismatic level of this meeting and that actually if you do have a midweek prayer meeting which obviously most of us still do we certainly do we keep, that's actually a great deep end context because people even if they're new to that kind of meeting they're not new to christianity and they wouldn't come if they were um but then the, but then sunday mornings are shallower and actually some shallow some sunday mornings are shallower than others so easter sunday is very shallow charismatically speaking not i hope not you know we're going to talk about the resurrection it's not shallow <laughs> But it's, but you know what I mean. But it's, but from a charismatic point of view, we're not expecting things to happen in that setting that are particularly unexpected. And we partly, we deliberately structure the meeting that way because we know that, in our case, like literally thousands of people come on Easter Sunday, and we just, we, you can't, you're not going to let a free for all in that sort of setting. But then there will be some Sundays where we go, we're actually preaching into this, and we want it. We're going to create some comforts by having spoken into it and addressed some things with clarity. And then you have groups which might be a bit more intermediate, and then you have. Probably even funny things like worship team gatherings and things like settings like that where people are, go, or in their teams, their groups are praying for the kids' work. That might be deeper. And then you have a prayer meeting, which is more like a deep end. And that to, that to me helps. We, because of the size of our meetings, we actually have some sites where people can speak from the seats, which generally means more people contribute, but the quality of the contribution is more variable, honestly. And then we have some sites where they need to go through the front because the meeting is larger and because there's a lot more new people. Um, and we just don't know as many people personally. That's often the challenge. Who, am I going to give the mic to you? Or I, I don't know. I mean, do you know this person? You can't have that conversation in the moment, can you? Um, are they going to say anything weird? <laughs> you know, like, um, and so I think so we've actually done it where some of our sites have a different practice relative to others. But I know that's a multi-site specific comment. But if you're in a site of 100 at King's, you will, the, the charismatic dynamic, there will be a lower barrier to entry. And I actually think that's, in our setting, that's okay because... People are less weirded out because they actually can see everybody else. They just turn over and oh, it's they're speaking. Whereas in a big meeting where you just literally can't tell where the voice is coming from and it's just this booming thing, people often feel more unsettled by strangeness and, that, and it's also better to filter things. So that's how we've, we do that. Um, and, but I think we've also been challenged more recently, this last year, by uh, a friend of ours from the vineyard who's been in the vineyard for 30 years. And he's just been good on, in your context, you have always tended to do spiritual gifts in the singing bit at the beginning. That's not wrong. And in the vineyard context, we've always tended to do the ministry and spiritual gifts, prophetic stuff at the end after the message and the ministry time. And neither is right or wrong, but it's just you, you can do some things with doing it here that you can't do with doing it here and vice versa. And that to me has just been interesting. If you're trying to go deeper, going, doing that in response to the preaching of the word where people have set up some things and some parameters around it can actually be easier for people to find a way in than if you do it after the second song. Um, a few thoughts, but 
yeah, we could talk much more about that.